Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 14. At the end of chapter 13, we concluded the section of Matthew's gospel we titled Teaching and Preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom Against Rising Opposition. Here in Matthew 14, we begin a section that runs through to the end of chapter 18 and the first two verses of chapter 19, which we may usefully title Progressive Polarization. We saw this happening already in the previous section. We talked about how the parables of Jesus actually serve to further divide people into two camps, two opposite poles, in terms of their reaction to Jesus. Some are drawn closer in, and the secrets of the kingdom are revealed to them, but others are driven further away. They don't understand. They think Jesus is speaking gibberish, and as a result, they harden in their opposition to his ministry. That's polarization, and we see that trend accelerating in the following chapters. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, once again, you'll notice here, if you have two Bibles open in front of you today, one to the Gospel of Mark and one to the Gospel of Matthew, that Matthew has dramatically edited and truncated the story. Mark's version is much longer, but we're accustomed to that pattern now. Generally speaking, Matthew abbreviates Mark on the narrative portions so that he can include large blocks of teaching material, and we see him doing that again here. Matthew tells this story with a minimum of detail. If you want more detail, read Mark, but also read Josephus, because he tells this story as well. In fact, Josephus spends more time talking about John the Baptist than he does talking about Jesus, which is interesting in and of itself. The point, however, is that John was a significant character, both spiritually and politically speaking. History records that Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, as he is sometimes called, divorced his first wife in order to marry the wife of his half-brother. This precipitated a war with his former father-in-law, the king of Petra, and thoroughly outraged his Jewish subjects. John the Baptist, in particular, appears to have led a sustained campaign against Herod as a result. 
Matthew uses the imperfect tense in verse 4, indicating that it was not a one-time thing when John spoke out against Herod. It was ongoing. And that squares with what Josephus actually says. Josephus says that John was executed for sedition, that is to say, for politically undermining Herod. The gospel writers focus more on the immediate circumstances because they serve to highlight just how immoral and weak the political leaders of the nation were at this time. Herod is portrayed less as a political operative and more of a feckless pervert. But as any observer of politics will tell you, it is possible for both of those perspectives to be equally and simultaneously accurate. People do things out of a variety of competing motivations. So here. The reason Matthew includes this story seems to be because it foreshadows the likely fate of all kingdom messengers. Remember, the theme for this section is progressive polarization. And so Matthew begins this section with a story of where this sort of opposition generally goes. It leads toward injustice, abuse, mistreatment, and eventually death and martyrdom. Kingdom messengers aren't just being shouted down now. They're being hunted down, arrested, imprisoned, and beheaded. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Let's just notice again the compassion of Jesus. He came to preach. Make no mistake about that. He had a message. He had a mission, but he was constantly found ministering to the poor and vulnerable of the land. There is a lesson in there for us. Let there be a lesson in there for us. Too often, we seem to talk in Christian circles as if we have to choose between preaching the gospel or ministering with compassion to the poor. To state the obvious, Jesus never felt that tension. He did both. He didn't let the one distract him from the other, but neither did he feel as though prioritizing the one disqualified the other. He was a man of purpose and a man of pity, and the cause of Christ would be so well served if we all did a better job of following his example. He saw the crowd, he was filled with compassion, and he healed their sick. Thanks be to God. Verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate. And were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, beside women and children. Now we should know that this is one of only two miracles that are mentioned in all four of the Gospels, the resurrection of Christ being the other. So obviously the disciples thought that this event was massively important. 
The fact that John, writing last, also saw fit to include it, despite the fact that his habit is generally to fill in the blanks, tells you that he also thought it was massively important. So what exactly is going on here? Well, it is clear that Jesus is acting intentionally. This is not merely an act of compassion on the crowd. It is that, but it is also clearly more than that. Commentators generally agree that Jesus is intentionally recalling a particular aspect of Old Testament prophecy here. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses had said that one day in the future, God would raise up a prophet like him. He said that in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, this prophet was going to divide people into two camps. God himself said that in Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 19. He said, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Closed quote. So God said that, If people listen to this prophet, then you would be inside the covenant community. And if you didn't listen to him, then you would be outside. So Matthew is trying to show us here that Jesus is that prophet. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Just like Moses brought manna in the desert, so Jesus brought bread from heaven in the wilderness. That's the the obvious parallel. And it is made even more explicit in John's gospel. John includes a conversation with the crowd after the miracle. They said to Jesus, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So, Jesus says, I'm I'm not just like Moses. I'm also like the manna. You have to eat me. You have to receive me and believe in me in order to have life and in order to enter the promised land. So Jesus himself makes those connections. And the crowd makes those connections, however imperfectly. And then also, it is likely that we're supposed to see in this great miracle a foreshadowing of of the messianic banquet. In the Old Testament, the Messiah was understood as a king who would rule over his people and bring them into a time of peace and plenty. The kingdom of God was one giant banquet where the food was free, the wine flowed, and the fellowship was never ending. Isaiah 25, 6-9, for example, says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah 25, 6-9. So the kingdom of God is a never-ending banquet. Death is no more. Sin is no more. God is with us and we are with him in peace, in plenty, with one another 
forever. That is the kingdom of heaven in a nutshell, which is why many of Jesus' parables of the kingdom feature him as the host and us as his guests at an everlasting and overflowing banquet. That metaphor can be found also in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, an angel says to John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So Old Testament and New, the kingdom of heaven is a banquet. And the Messiah is host and king. And Matthew is saying here, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is our host and our king. And he has begun to lead, feed, and provide for his covenant people. All of that symbolism is there in the story. And it runs pretty close to the surface, so much so that John tells us that the crowd began to get out of control. They started connecting the dots and Jesus was required to take immediate action. In in John 6, verse 15, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowd was figuring it out, but they, they didn't yet have all the pieces And so Jesus moved quickly and wisely to quell their enthusiasm. Matthew makes the same point, just not as explicitly as John. Look at verse 22 of our Matthew chapter 14. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So Jesus hustles the disciples out of there and calms the crowd down and dismisses them. It's been a busy day and almost a dangerous day. So Jesus goes up the mountain and begins to pray. We pick up the story halfway through verse 23. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. This is clearly presented as a theophany, as a manifestation of Christ's divinity. Jesus is saying here to the disciples, I am not just the prophet like Moses, and I am not just the messianic king. I am God. That's what you need to see. That's what the crowds didn't see, but that's what you need to see in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is amping up his revelation here, and he is pressing that particularly hard upon the disciples. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. As I said, clearly the main point here is to elevate our understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ. He isn't just the prophet like Moses. He isn't just the messianic king. He is God. That's the main point here. Secondarily, I think it is fair to reflect a little bit upon the nature of Christian discipleship here. Peter is trying to follow Jesus, 
And, and he does kind of imperfectly, embarrassingly. And that's probably the point as well. I think the text is saying that as our faith in Christ grows, so shall our ability to imitate Christ grow. We will become like him by one degree of glory to the next. Thanks be to God. Verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the people of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Again, it's hard to predict how people will respond to Jesus. The people of Nazareth opposed him. The crowd who ate the bread wanted to enthrone him. And these people hail him as a miraculous healer. People are all over the map at this point when it comes to Jesus. But one thing is absolutely clear. Touching Jesus, trusting Jesus changes everything for people in an instant. Peter trusted Jesus, and for a moment anyway, he walked on water. These people in Gennesaret trusted Jesus. They grabbed onto him as though grabbing onto life itself, and as many as touched him were made well. Matthew is saying that what you decide to do with Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in this world. But he is also encouraging us, he is challenging us to reach out and to take hold of Jesus, however much of him you understand, take hold of what you know, and ask him to reveal to you the rest. Jesus is the gateway to a whole new kingdom and a whole new life. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 